welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. In 1914, at the start of the Great War, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire called for a great jihad against France, Russia, and Great Britain. It was a logical conclusion to over 50 years of conflict between European and indigenous powers in the Middle East and North Africa, a conflict that eventually became a radical Islamic insurgency, supporting an ancient slave trade against Western colonialism that exploited coolie capitalism. This is the complex story that Neil Faulkner tells in his new book, Empire and Jihad, the Anglo-Arab Wars of 1817-1920. Ranging from the Congo Basin to the deserts of North Africa, he traces the complex interweaving of humanitarianism, colonialism, nationalism, and Islamism, arguing that jihad was a reactionary response to modern imperialism. Neil Faulkner is an archaeologist and historian who works as a lecturer, writer, excavator, and occasional broadcaster. He is editor of Military History Matters and the author of 15 books. Neil Faulkner, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. So this, um, as I was saying to you just before we started recording, um, this uh, is, well, we'll, well let's first let's, let's focus on your argument. If you were going to give the, the sort of the elevator speech of your argument, what is your argument in the book? I think the basic argument, um, if, if we're doing the, you know, the, the back of a postage stamp kind of summary of the argument, I would say the essence of it is this. Um, but what what happens in um, northeast Africa between about 1870 and 1920 is you get the playing out of a conflict between uh, Western imperialism, essentially British imperialism on the one hand, and uh, Islamic jihadism, Islamic holy war um, on the other, where it is the intervention of British imperialism that triggers the jihadist uh, response. And that jihadist response is fundamentally an attempt to defend uh, the existing economic and social uh, setup, which is based upon the Arab uh, slave trade, and the Arab slave trade has been surging in this period, actually reaching a, reaching a peak. Even though it go, goes back hundreds of years, it reaches a peak in the mid to late 19th century. And that in turn is because of the development of world capitalism and the huge expansion in uh, markets and the huge expansion in demand for primary commodities. And it's in that context that you get the expansion of the slave trade. So the locus is in Northeast Africa, but this story stretches. I mean, we we start with with a very disparate set of characters. Uh, we have Neil Living, uh, uh, David Livingston, um, which is far south of Northeast Africa. I guess. Um, I mean, we're into the Congo Basin. This le- leads us to to topics we've discussed in earlier episodes, which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, the entire the ivory trade and then the slave trade within the Congo Basin, um, and you know how keys end up on pianos manufactured in Manchester and Birmingham and elsewhere. Um, this is, these are all these interrelated globalizing forces, um, which, uh, 
eventually produces this sort of uh, this jihad. So what I found fascinating, as I said to you, is that you take a bunch of events like David Livingston and Stanley Churchill, and then you sort of link them all the way to through to the the mad mullah in Somaliland, which is not a phrase I've ever used before. Um, and over fifty years, and you sort of you saw a connect a through connection to them. How did that? How did that? How did that vision come about? Mm. Um, how did you mm. see that? Your last book was on the Great Arab Revolt uh, in, in the Great War. So was that? Did it stem from that? Well, um, yes, it was. Uh, the Great Arab Revolt of 1916 to 1918, very much focused on uh, Lawrence of Arabia, actually called the book Lawrence of Arabia's uh, War. Um, but I became interested in the whole problem of Islamic jihadism uh, in that period as a result of working on that earlier project, because one of the reasons why the British formed an alliance with the Emir of Mecca during the First World War is because they were very concerned in 1914 that when the Ottoman Empire came into the war, one of the first things that happened was that the Ottoman Empire declared a global uh, jihad. Now, that was an immediate threat to the British and also to their allies in the First World War, the French and the Russians, uh, the the Russians ruled over 20 million Muslims in Central Asia. The French ruled over 20 million Muslims, predominantly in North Africa. The British ruled over no less than 100 million Muslims at the time, primarily in Egypt and in the Indian subcontinent. So once that jihadist call uh, went out when the Ottoman Empire came into the First World War. Immediately, there was a threat to these three major imperial powers that were wartime um, allies that they could suddenly find themselves dealing with a massive, massive internal insurgency inside their empires, which would, of course, drained military force away from the main fronts in the First World War. Now, I became very interested in this whole problem partly because of the contemporary echoes, because we have the launch of the self-proclaimed war on terror in 2001, and the effect of uh, Bush and Blair's, as, they, as it was at the time, their intervention, first in Afghanistan and then in Iraq, was to trigger um, an Islamic uh, jihad. And I had this sense, really, that history was repeating um, itself. So I wanted to examine in much more detail the roots of that, what I call the first modern jihad. If we think about the jihad at the moment, that's the second uh, modern jihad, if you like. I wanted to look at the first modern jihad because it seemed to be a re... What's happening now seemed to be a replay of what was happening then. As soon as I did that, I realised that you've got to push it back Right. Well, the the start date, in a sense, is 1851. Now, why 1851? Because that is the moment when David Livingston, who is trained as a doctor, uh, goes out to South Africa as a missionary. The moment when he transitions, really, from being a missionary to being an explorer and um, pushing right up from South Africa uh, to uh, the Zambezi uh, River in 1851 and coming into contact for the first time with the effects of the surging East African uh, slave trade. 
And from that moment onwards, 1851 until the time of his death, David Livingstone is a man with a mission. Although he continues to be an explorer, primarily what is driving him is this very deep-rooted... Um, I mean, he's he, he's he's a he's a he's a very strange man in all sorts of ways. But fundamental to his being is a deep uh, Christian uh, conscientiousness, a deep Christian humanitarianism, which means that he makes his life's mission really to broadcast what is happening uh, in. Uh, Africa, the way in which the heart of traditional Africa is being torn out by the slave trade, and to try and mobilise political forces to intervene to uh, eradicate the slave trade. Uh, and of course, the context for this is that in Victorian Britain, slavery has already been abolished. Britain's Royal Navy has been actively involved in suppressing the slave trade, the European slave trade, essentially on the West African uh, coast. So there's already a large uh, a, a public opinion committed to abolitionism in Victorian England, but a very, very little awareness that there's a surging slave trade on the other side of the continent. David Livingston's mission becomes creating an abolitionist public opinion in Britain, which is concerned now with the East African slave trade. That's why the book starts in um, 1851. And then what we're looking at in the first section of the book is not just David Livingstone's journeys of exploration, but other journeys of exploration as well, ostensibly to find the sources of the River Nile. And indeed, that's what people are trying to do, to find the sources of the Nile. But what is important for the book is that what these other explorers, um, Samuel Baker, Burton and Speak, uh, Henry Morton Stanley and so on. What these other explorers are also doing is bringing to the attention of the Victorian public and more broadly the public in the English-speaking world the realities of the Arab slave trade. So what is the Arab slave trade? What is that, what is that labor that they're taking? What is it being used for? I think the critical thing, um, absolutely at the core of it, is that um, there's a surging demand for ivory, and um, ivory, you know, as as the world economy expands massively in the 19th century, huge expansion of demand for a complete range of primary commodities, but not least ivory, which is being used for all kinds of things. The most interesting of which, which I I talk about a little bit in the book, is the piano, mm -hmm. because piano keys were made out of um, elephant ivory. And the piano becomes a kind of symbol, really, of gentility. So it's not just the aristocracy, but also the um, increasingly prosperous middle class that wants to have a piano in the house as a mark of their status. Here's the supreme irony. This mark of gentility and civilization in Victorian England and elsewhere depends upon the slaughter of huge numbers of elephants, of course, in the middle of Africa. But also that ivory has then got to be moved from Central Africa to the coast. And who does the shifting? Well, it's African porters. How do you get the numbers of African porters that you need to do this? Well, there's not a huge pool of surplus labour available. What do you do? You enslave people. Mm -hmm. And by enslaving them, 
you double the profit because by the time you get to the coast, not only have you got your haul of elephant ivory, you've also got human captives that you can send as, uh, as slaves. And there's a surging demand for slaves as well. And that's because there's a whole range of other primary commodities for which demand is rising and where slaves can actually be the people who are working um, on the clove plantations, for example, or the vanilla um, plantations, or they're, uh, or, or they're, or they're um, working in the sort of gum Arabic uh, fields, or they're um, diving for pearls and so on. Lots of other commodities in the Indian Ocean economy for which demand is rising. And then you've got a lot of wealth swilling around in Persia, in Arabia, in the Ottoman Empire, in Egypt, and so on. And that wealth, which is swilling around, also generates a demand for domestic service, which takes the form, again, of slaves. So you've got surging demand for slaves in the framework of this surging of the uh, international economy at the time. Hmm. So as you said, uh, David Livingston is a is a fascinating, complex, and odd personality, and he's one of many in the book. So, um, could you describe? Uh, this is the, sort of the first part of the in the first section of the book. Um, and I want to go through this as you discussed, sort of, a, which is beautifully titled "Black Ivory and White White Nile." Um, this is the so the themes really are of th- these are the people that I read about, say, the National Geographic uh, Children's Book of Africa, um, looking for the source of the Nile, but it was also there's they're not just looking for the Nile, as you said they're also they're also um they're publicists in some way they're publicizing yeah. Africa what's going on in Africa and particularly the slave trade so could we talk about Samuel Baker who is also another fascinating character to yeah. put it mildly no. no they are fascinating guys um, one of the things I like to do I mean although I am an academic you know and I, I I do you know field research and I do research in the archives and so on I like to tell a story. And, you know, I think, you know, that's absolutely fundamental to the human condition, really, that we like to hear a story, we like to tell a story, we like to share a story. So I was accused by one reviewer of the book of uh, various uh, digressions from the main subject. And my response is, yeah, actually, (laughs) when I've got a really interesting character like Samuel Baker that you've just yeah. mentioned. I want to I want to talk about Samuel Baker. I want to give a bit of biography. I want to talk about what Samuel Baker has done up until this point. You know, it, I think people are interested in the fact yeah. he, he set up a, a model farm in Salon, that he was a big game hunter, that he was a kind of one of these restless uh, adventurers. He's been described as the perfect Victorian hero. I think there's a dark side to him. As well, I think unlike uh, Livingston, who was genuinely an anti-racist, unlike Livingston, I think, you know, Baker shared a lot of the racist and imperialist assumptions of the class to which he belonged. But that's part of his character. Mm -hmm. And there's no question at all, he's got the most extraordinary uh, willpower and supported, interestingly, by his wife, who goes with him on all of his journeys, absolutely grueling journeys. I mean, they were they were close to death on a number of occasions. I mean, they managed to trigger, you know, this is an indication really of Baker's insensitivity 
and, and also his impetuosity, they effectively trigger a full-scale tribal war um, in the heart of Africa. And they're very, very lucky um, to get away um, with, their, with their lives. And all of that's very, very interesting. And, of course, there's a huge audience in Victorian Britain for what are adventure stories based upon this whole business of exploration, of opening up what was called um, the dark continent. Hugh, I mean, the books that are produced by these explorers, like, like Baker's Ismailia, they become bestsellers. They become bestsellers. There's a huge appetite for this stuff. So it's, and, it's not just pianos and sheet music that are selling. It's it, um, and musical education. That's it's, this yes. is a time of, of absolutely burgeoning literacy. Um, this is a great time to be. This is the time in, in world history to be a freelance writer. Um, and yes. uh, and because ev everyone people are learning to read and they're buying and they're reading stuff at an amazing rate. Absolutely right. Huge, huge expansion in print publication um you know new newspapers new magazines demand for serialized stories uh, to create copy um so a very high proportion of the literature that's being generated at the time originally takes the form of uh serialization in one of the newspapers or the um and magazines but book publishing as well and that's what these people um are feeding so what's Baker's connection then to this Arab slave trade? I mean, how does it, other than just being a spectator to it as he's thrashing about looking for the source of the Nile? Well, I think I think in Baker's case, he's essentially a spectator. Um, I, I mean, he, he's not a man with a mission. He's not a man who's going to become a uh, an abolitionist uh, crusader. He's not in the same uh, league as Livingston and indeed uh, Stanley. It's worth mentioning Stanley in this mm -hmm. context because Henry Morton Stanley becomes as important um, as a broadcaster um, of uh, what is you know what is happening in terms of the slave trade, but also a campaigner uh, for abolition as Livingston um, had been. Baker's not that, but Baker makes many references, of course, in his accounts of his journeys to uh, the slave trade. Uh, so he becomes part, really, of this whole publicity machine, which is raising the level of interest in what is going on in um, Africa and creating a working class and a middle class public opinion. The working class is part of this as well, because the working class is beginning to organise in trade unions, in, 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 in socialist parties and so on. It's not just middle class, it's the parts of the working class as well. A public opinion on this question that is way ahead of the political elite, the political class in Britain at the time. But in 1869, Baker becomes governor of Equatoria, mm -hmm. um, which is in a key moment and sort of that's sort of, sort of the beginning of, or the second or third of one of the many beads in this string. So could you explain what Equatoria was, where it was, and, and yeah. what it meant to be governor of this place? Yeah, and it does bring us into the sort of, in a way, the second phase, because um, I think what happens with, uh, and I think Livingston, shortly before his death, comes to this conclusion, and then more generally there's, there, there, there's a belief that um, the business of simply opening up Africa, exploring Africa, opening up Africa to commerce, 
and Christian conversion and therefore to civilization, which is how it's imagined in the mid-Victorian period. The mid-Victorian period is very idealistic mm-hmm. about the potential of these forces to actually civilize uh, the world. There's a growing realization by the 1870s um, that actually doesn't work like that. That what's really happening is you're getting an expansion of the slave trade because of the huge demand that there is for uh, raw materials, primary commodities, markets, and so on at the time. And you're going to need some kind of hard intervention, military intervention, in other words, of one kind or another, to suppress uh, the slave trade. Now, the initial phase of this in the 1870s takes the form of, if you like, a new generation of, and again, they're British primarily, but not all British. There are some other Europeans as well. But people who are essentially going out into um, Africa, first and foremost into the Sudan, in order to address the slave trade, in order to try and eradicate the slave trade. But who are they working for? They're not working for the British. They're not working for for an abolitionist society. They're working for the Khedive of Egypt, who is the more or less independent ruler of the country under the kind of formal authority, um, the ostensible authority of the Ottoman Sultan. But in reality, the Khedive of Egypt has effective autonomy. And the Khedives of Egypt throughout the 19th century have been trying to build their own empire in Sudan. So there are wars of conquest going on in Sudan. Samuel Baker is appointed as the governor of new territory, which the Khedive of Egypt is trying to win um, in the southern part of Sudan, as it, you know, as it subsequently becomes. So he becomes the governor general of Equatoria. Now, ostensibly, the way this is packaged is it's an attempt to eradicate the slave trade by pushing down into Equatoria, pushing down into the heart um, of the slave trade. The reality is very different. The reality is that the Khedive of Egypt is involved in a land grab, wants the territory, but also wants the wealth. And a crucial central part of the wealth is the slave trade. I mean, one of of the things I say in the book is you can't understand the economy of the Sudan without understanding that the slave trade is fundamental to it. The whole of the Sudanese economy revolves around the slave trade at the time. So if you're going to take over the Sudan, and you're taking over the Sudan because you want the wealth that is represented by the Sudan and the connection that the Sudan gives you to sources of valuable primary commodities in Central Africa, then effectively you're 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 endorsing the slave trade, and indeed you're wanting a share of the profits from the slave trade. So this is an attempt by the Egyptian state, really, to take over the Sudan and to take over and profit from the Sudanese slave trade. Now, Baker is a kind of cover, really, for this operation. And then he is succeeded by a more famous figure, who is uh, Charles George Gordon, General Gordon, Gordon of Khartoum. Chinese Gordon from his role against the Taiping Rebellion in 1860. But uh, Chinese Gordon is no one's cover because... He, like Livingston, has a very complex and 
set of religious beliefs. And yes. one of them is basically abolitionism and the brotherhood of all peoples um, uh, related to his belief in that. And, and so, so him being, this gets into the really tricky part of the story where we have an idealist who is uh, operating on behalf of a, uh, let's, let's gently call the Khedive a pragmatist, um, <laughs> a pragmatic imperialist. So this this is, we, we already know things are going to end badly um, as soon as uh, someone like Gordon starts working for the Khedive. Well, I mean, I, I think, yes, you're right. Gordon is an absolutely fascinating character. Gordon is as interesting as um, Livingston. And I mean, one of one of the uh, one of the arguments that I've had with some people in relation to the earlier book and Lawrence of Arabia is to say, you know, you can't simply write off somebody like Lawrence of Arabia as just uh, an agent of British imperialism. If you did that, um, you're looking at a one-dimensional character who's not very interesting. It's precisely because he wasn't that um, that. He, he's so fascinating. The fact that he's torn apart by what British imperialism is doing, how it's shafting the Arabs, essentially, in the First World War. Gordon is the same. Mm-hmm. Gordon is not just a representative of, uh, well, Egyptian imperialism initially, and then subsequently British imperialism when he goes back to the Sudan at the behest of the, uh, the Gladstone government later in the story. And Gordon is not simply that. Gordon is a Victorian hero. And why is Victoria, why is he a Victorian hero? Because he's a Christian, because he's an abolitionist, because he is a genuinely conscientious man who tries to live his life by a very, very high moral standard. And there's absolutely no question at all. When Gordon goes to the Sudan, first of all, he's the Uh, governor of Equatoria in succession to Baker. Then he becomes the governor of the Sudan as a whole under the authority of the Khedive of Egypt. And then he goes back a third time at the behest of the Gladstone government. But when he's there, first of all, as the governor of Equatoria, then as the governor of the whole of Sudan, what's he doing? He's waging a full scale campaign against the slave trade. And that flares into Um, outright war in the late 1870s, where Gordon has um, officers under him who are fighting full-scale battles in the heart of Africa against the slave traders. The most important of them is uh, Romolo Gessi, um, uh, an, an Italian officer, also a committed, an idealist, a committed abolitionist. And Gessi, is right there in the heart of Africa, fighting a full-scale war um, against the slave traders. And it's interesting, you know, we we in Britain, you know, we know all about um, imperial campaigns in Zululand, for example, and the Battle of Isandlwana and Rourke's Drift. We know about imperial campaigns in uh, Afghanistan and so on. What we don't know about at all, it's, it's just not really high profile at all, is at almost exactly the same time, there's this extraordinary abolitionist war, anti-slavery war being fought in the heart of Africa, presided over by this extraordinary figure, uh, Charles George Gordon. Well, what's the result of this extraordinarily, this 
really surprisingly large and vicious war. I mean, what's the what, what's the end result? It doesn't stop the slave trade, I should say, uh, up, up front. Just to, spoiler alert. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's really very simple. Um, Gordon and and Jesse and the other officers who are involved in the abolitionist war, they are the political cover for what is effectively an imperial land grab by the Khedive of Egypt. The whole of the uh, Egyptian uh, colonial administration is riddled with corruption. I mean, the civil servants and the officers are all on the make, really. They're all getting their share in the profits of the slave trade. They're all getting their payoffs from the slave traders. So as soon as you extract Gordon and Jesse and the other officers from the situation, um, the, the, the slave trade surges again. So, it, so momentarily it's suppressed and then these officers disappear. They're replaced actually by um, Egyptian officers, Turco-Egyptian officers. Um, and, and, and then, of course, the whole thing surges up again. Mm-hmm. And then, in a series of, are they completely unrelated? In a in a series of unrelated events or related events, um, Egypt is made a protectorate, knocked over by British the British Empire. Um, is usually a story is given as as it's it's a desire to control the Suez, um, the Suez Canal, the route to India, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is the slave trade related to? Are there are there passions? pushing up from below to encourage a takeover of uh, Egypt in order to cut to the the root of the slave trade? I, I think I, I think the way I'd put it is this, um, and I, I do see the nationalist revolution in Egypt in 1881-1882 as almost the hinge on which the book uh, mm-hmm. turns. I think yeah. I'd put it slightly differently. I, I, I would say this, um, the the uh, the Khedive's regime, mm-hmm. uh, which is a modernising regime. I mean, it's wanting to promote the slave trade because it's profitable, but it's wanting to modernise Egypt and turn Egypt into uh, you know a modern state. Huge investment in infrastructure projects, which means that Egypt gets massively into debt, primarily to British and French uh, bankers, mm-hmm. and. The, the the financial crisis in Egypt becomes so serious that there's the possibility of um, Egypt uh, repudiating its debts. So you get Egypt at the end of the 1870s, at the same time, actually, as the, uh, the abolitionist war is being fought in Sudan. You get Egypt being put under a, a kind of protectorate arrangement where you have British and French financial administrators in control of the finances of the country. This brings us quite quickly to a confrontation between uh, the Khedive's regime, which is basically a client regime now, and the uh, British and the French administrators representing really the interests of Anglo-French finance capital. You get a confrontation between these forces on one side and on the other, Egyptian nationalist forces demanding um, independence uh, for Egypt, and in, and in particular, at the root of this, there's a process, and it's a it's a hideous process, whereby the some of the poorest people uh, in the region, the ordinary peasantry of the Delta and the Nile Valley, are being squeezed by taxation, essentially to make debt payments 
uh, to um, Anglo-French uh, uh, bankers. And that's, that's what this whole setup becomes, a ghastly mechanism of exploitation in the interests of finance capital. And that's powering the Egyptian nationalist revolution. And what I say about this is, is it's essentially a liberal revolution, a nationalist revolution. And if you look at what um, Arabi uh, Pasha, Colonel Arabi Pasha, who's almost like a, an early, uh, an early uh, Colonel Nasser. If you think about Colonel Nasser in the 1950s, he's, he's like an earlier version of that. So he's an army officer and the army is central to the revolt. And he's a very progressive figure in the context of the region and the period. I mean, he's saying, for example, we want to abolish the slave trade. The people who profit from the slave trade are the rich. We don't represent the rich. You know, the vast majority of ordinary Egyptians don't hold slaves. We want to abolish uh, the slave trade is one of the things that he is saying. Why does the slave trade even come up? I mean, because the slave trade for for people in the Delta, the slave trade is just, um, it's, I mean, it's literally a thousand miles away, more perhaps. I mean, why why is the slave trade even an issue in, say, Egyptian politics? Because there are huge numbers of slaves in Egypt. Okay. Uh, there are huge numbers of slaves in other parts of the Middle East. Um, you know, they're ending up in the Ottoman Empire. They're ending up in Arabia. They're ending up in Persia. So, and so, so they're literally coming in, down the Nile and then, you know, being shipped out from, from e- there. Exactly that. They're coming down the Nile, uh, but a lot of them are then sticking uh, mm. in Egypt itself. And what Arabi and the nationalists are saying is, uh, yeah, we've got slaves working on Uh, plantations belonging to big landowners, we've got slaves who are in the households of the uh, the, uh, Egyptian um, elite. And this this we reject. This is part of the setup uh, that we reject. And I I, I, I blame, I mean, it's not, it's not central to the Egyptian nationalist uh, revolution. It's about, you know, independence, a liberal constitution, the modernization of Egypt, social reform and so on in the interests of the Egyptian peasantry. But it's important uh, to the story to say that what you have as a result of this nationalist revolution is an intervention in 1882, a military intervention in 1882, by a liberal government that isn't in fact liberal at all. Because what it's out to do in this particular case is to smash a nationalist liberal uh, revolution in the interests of Anglo-French finance, and as you've already mentioned, uh, in in order to su- to secure uh, the Suez Canal. So that is, in effect, well, just to to uh, to cut to the chase, that is um, effective. They 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 succeed, um, and Egypt becomes a protectorate until what nineteen? I mean, really, until the Suez Crisis of fifty six, in in, in 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 many ways, um, for almost a century after that. Um, but then we come to this another fascinating figure, uh, who is not a British military mystic um, or a Scottish missionary, but in fact uh, a Muslim prophet, the Mahdi. So uh, the Mahdi is uh, almost a reaction to this action. Um, who is he and, and what does he preach? He is a, um, he's a radical uh, Islamic uh, religious uh, teacher. Um, he is very highly educated 
in a very narrow sense, very, very highly educated in uh, the Quran and in traditional Islamic uh, teaching, uh, deeply religious, deeply uh, pious, and men of his type uh, in a traditional Islamic society at this time often acquire very high status and a reputation. And he uh, comes to the conclusion, um, because of his piety, because of his growing uh, reputation, because uh, he is a man who is a kind of mystic, um, he thinks he has a direct line to God, he thinks that God speaks directly to him or through him, he comes to the conclusion that he is the Mahdi. He is the guided one, the expected one. Now, this is a feature of uh, traditional Islam going right back to the beginnings of Islam, which is mirrored incidentally in Christianity. Christianity, of course, also has this deep-rooted idea of the um, of the Messiah, um, which is linked with a kind of millenarian idea that that the uh, the Messiah or the Mahdi is going to lead the faithful in a holy war to re-establish the true religion and a proper ordering of society in conformity with the true religion. So what is this? This is a, it's a holy war, which is an attempt to return to a kind of pristine Islamic society, an imaginary Islamic society, in a sense that has never really um, existed. But that includes the idea of slavery. Because there are versions of Islam, just as there are versions of Christianity, that are prepared to uh, embrace the idea of slavery by making reference to, you know, what it says in the uh, Old uh, Testament about the descendants of Ham and so on. You can interpret the holy text to justify um, slavery if you wish to. The Mahdi, of course, is prepared to do that. He must do that because his primary uh, social base in the revolt which he then leads, the holy war which he leads, is going to be the Arab slave traders because the Arab slave trade is so fundamental to the Sudanese economy. Virtually all significant people, virtually all tribal leaders, have a finger in the pie, are making money out of the slave trade, and you've got this sense among them that they are under threat. Um, they've just faced this, they've just survived this, abolitionist war led by General uh, Gordon, uh, they know, of course, that there is in a growing British influence um, in uh, Egypt. There's growing concern that the slave trade is in peril, that it's under attack. So you get this uh, fusion, really, of uh, a kind of medieval Islamic jihadism on the one hand represented by the Mahdi and the attempt to defend the Arab slave trade, which is the basis of the Sudanese economy on the other. And that's the essence, really, of the Mahdist movement that swells into a huge uh, conflagration between 1881 and 1884. Who, who are they revolting against? They're revolting initially against the Turkish administration. So, I mean, if it's the case that I mean, maybe I've oversimplified a bit by focusing on the Islamic jihadism and the Arab slave trade. Another element in this, of course, is that the uh, the Sudanese peasantry, particularly living along the banks of the Nile, 
where it's easy to get at them, those Sudanese peasantry have been heavily taxed and subjected to all kinds of uh, forced labour requirements and military press ganging and so on. So there's real bitterness in the in the villages of the Sudan against the Turkish colonial administration. So this is um, a, a Sudanese revolt to get rid of the uh, of the Turkish colonial administration. And then back into this boiling pot, the British government sends Charles Gordon. Um, sort of the perfect. I mean, this is this is well. It's been you know, it worked in Khartoum, uh, in the movie Khartoum, where the perfect cinematic, uh, you know, confrontation, diamond cut diamond, uh, Christian mystic versus Islamic mystic, um, you know, military saint versus military saint. Um, <laughs> so uh, it doesn't. Uh, this is it's it, it, short story. Uh, he he's killed. Um, and let's jump forward because I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, I want to spend a, a little bit here, a little bit more from you uh, about uh, not of the absolutely often told dramatic confrontation between Gordon and the Mahdi um, and, the, and Gordon's death in, in, in Khartoum, but what then the Mahdi sets up, this, this, is this caliphate that he sets up based in uh, Sudan. Um, one thing that occurs to me is that the Ottoman, uh, the Sultan might have something to say about there being another caliphate. I mean, he thinks he's caliph. We, we discussed at the beginning of, 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 of the conversation in 1914, he had declared a jihad. Uh, he can do that because he's um, caliph. Uh, and uh, we mentioned the current, um, current the modern jihad. Um, some of us will recall after I think Osama bin Laden's uh, the video address after September 11th, where he was discussing the the curse. Was it 1921, 1922? There was a, a date that people, well educated people, were scratching their heads and saying, "What's he? What's he so worried? What's he so upset about that year for?" Um, that was the end of the the caliphate, at least the the Ottoman caliphate. So, how can there be two caliphates? And what kind of caliphate does the Mahdi set up? That's my those are my questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, of course, um, there can be many uh, caliphates because there are many people claiming to be uh, the caliph. It's happened, it and, happened before, and, to be to be fair. This is what sixth yes, century, seventh exactly. century, yeah, 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 yeah. No, um, of course, and and um, and of course, uh, what the Mahdi would say and did say uh, about the Ottoman Sultan was that the Ottoman Sultan was not a, a true uh, caliph because he wasn't uh, subscribing to. Um, traditional Islam and, and so on and so forth, and 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 the Maha- the Mahdi's message was very much that you know Sudan was the initial base, mm-hmm. uh, but then they the 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 jihad mm-hmm. and therefore the caliphate created by the jihad was going to extend across the uh, whole of the Muslim world. So um, the first objective is Cairo, but beyond Cairo. There is Baghdad, there is just Damascus, there's Constantinople and so on. So this is a, a suggestion that there needs to be a worldwide uh, jihad in order to restore uh, the uh, the true uh, faith. And yes, of course, the Ottoman Sultan is not terribly impressed by the claims being made uh, by the Mahdi. And more immediately, the Khedive of Egypt, who was restored to power as a puppet ruler, a client ruler, uh, by the British after the smashing of the nationalist revolt in 1882. Of course, the Khedive uh, of Egypt rejects the claims um, of the Mahdi. And it is possible for the, for the Mahdi's caliphate to be contained uh, within 
uh, the Sudan. And that, of course, is because there is now, I mean, how things might have played out had the British not intervened uh, militarily is anybody's quest, uh, anybody's guess. But what we can say is that because of the effective British takeover of Egypt and the construction of a new um, Anglo-Egyptian army, uh, a process which begins in the in the eighteen eighties, you have the southern frontier of Egypt effectively defended. So the uh, the expansion of the uh, jihad, the Sudanese jihad, the caliphate northwards is prevented, but you also have a British lodgment on the Red Sea coast also, and the British managed to hold on to uh, Suakin and one or two other uh, places on the coast, which means you also have a kind of permanent uh, lodgment of British imperial power um, on the eastern uh, edge of the Sudan. You also, incidentally, have a massive confrontation during the period of the existence of the Mahdist uh, Caliphate uh, between the Sudanese uh, Islamists on the one hand and the Ethiopians uh, on the other. And the Ethiopians are uh, Christian. So there's also a confessional conflict here. And that's an absolutely massive war with huge, huge uh, casualties, which is a stalemate, effectively. Mm-hmm. I mean, neither side is able to uh, break uh, break through. And again, what is happening here is that uh, the way I sort of understand it is I, I feel that the um, the the Sudanese caliphate, um, it, it's almost as if it's got to pursue this expansionary um, agenda in order to justify its existence and to hold itself together sociologically and ideologically inside the Sudan. It's based on a promise. It's based on a false promise. It's based on the promise of the regeneration of Islam globally. I mean, when I think about it, I think it's a little bit like, I'm going to use a kind of historical parallel, if I may. I think it's a little bit like the way in which interwar fascism works uh, in both Italy and Germany, where you have this kind of, um, you have this very aggressive, militaristic, nationalist, racist ideology. And in the interest of the kind of internal stability of these regimes, they have to deliver on this promise. So you get a drive towards militarism. You get a drive towards imperial expansion. And I think it's rather similar the dynamic, the internal dynamic for the Mahdist Caliphate in the uh, in the Sudan. The whole thing that's binding it together is this ideology of Islamic resurgence. You write, um, well, what was really, I had no idea that, that this was the case, but they essentially, they destro- deliberately destroy Khartoum and rebuild the capital across the river, across the Nile in Omdurman. Um, I'd always thought that the battle was fought across from Khartoum. It just fought this honor. It's just a site, but it's actually a city of six miles of, of everything from mud and straw huts to the dome mausoleum created over the, the, the Mahdi put over his tomb. But most important, you write, were the barracks. And as a Sudanese historian, as Hassan Zulfo put it, the modest revolution was born by the sword, lived by the sword, and perished by the sword. And to quote you, it was not simply that military insurgency had created the modest state. It was that the very existence of the state 
its ability to contain the contradictions that threatened to tear it apart, came to depend upon military power, permanent war, and a state of tension. This, in the nature of things, was inevitable. The regime existed to wage jihad. That was purpose of the regime. So we've got this sort of, um, it's a sort of reinterpretation. Well, actually, maybe it's a, it's a good interpretation of the seventh century, you know, is Islamic state. Um, yeah. um, unlike that Islamic state, unlike that initial Islamic state in the first hundred years of Islam, however, the Mahdi is not successful in that continual, ever victorious sweep of his armies. So this, as it were, heightens the contradictions um, mm. within the Mahdi state. Is that, that that's a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, the the fact that it can't continue to expand, uh, the fact that the fact that it's contained, if you like, mm-hmm. the fact that it becomes increasingly dependent on certain highly militarized client groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are become a very repressive force uh, because, of course, they in turn, have to impose high levels of taxation, of conscription, and so on, in order to maintain uh, the state. As a military state, the state is very expensive. And Sudan is a very, very backward, impoverished society. So to sustain the military infrastructure, which is necessary for both internal security and border defense, you have to impose very heavily on the population. So I think what's happening is in the 15 years or so that the Caliphate exists, you've got a gradual internal uh, decay. And and British commentators on the spot, you know, colonial administrators and officers, they talk about this. They talk about the way in which the state is degrading um, internally, that the, that the Khalifa the successor of the Mahdi, increasingly he's dependent on a kind of ruthless military repression in order to maintain his position, which means that the Sudan becomes increasingly vulnerable to a renewed British intervention. And that renewed British intervention comes, I mean, I think probably they were just left the Sudan to it to itself, but because it wasn't really worth anything. But for this... Their big worry, we're in the middle of the scramble for Africa here. Every European power is trying to get a slice of the action in Africa. We're moving from a situation when in 1870, only about 10% of Africa was under European rule to a situation where by the end of the century, 90% of Africa was under European rule. This is the scramble for Africa. Every European power is moving in to try and grab uh, territory and the British are worried about what is happening, not so much in Sudan itself, but in the area which is immediately to the south of Sudan. In particular, they're worried about the French, who have a big empire in North and West Africa, and who are pushing for influence that might take them right the way across to the east coast. The French vision is to paint a band of blue across Africa from west to east. The British vision is to paint a a band of red, which extends from Cairo to the Cape, from the north to the south. So the British are very, very worried about their imperial interests being threatened by the French particularly, and to some degree by other imperial powers, in the heart of Africa. And that's why Sudan 
suddenly becomes important again on the chessboard, if you like. Uh, it becomes a territory which the British are interested in uh, having another go at taking over. What's become of the slave trade uh, without uh, it, uh, during the, uh, the the caliphate, the Mahdi's caliphate? Um, the, if there's a, the, the, there's a increased Royal Navy patrols in the Red Sea, as you alluded to, um, the Khedive is a puppet state uh, by a now anti-slavery regime. Um, are, is slave labor still being used in the Delta in the 1880s? I mean, what's what's the is is one of the is that one of the afflictions against uh, the modest regime is that they they can't sell slaves the way that they had been able to do in the 1870s? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, I think the slave trade is under pressure because the routes are getting blocked. I mean, the first route to get blocked and you've already alluded to it, is the uh, coastal route. And that is because of the the, the British set up a, um, an East African uh, squadron, which is policing uh, uh, the seas and doing it very, very effectively. Doing it too effectively, as far as local British administrators are concerned, because they're worried that local Arab, you know, the opinion of local Arab potentates is being... Um, offended, and there's an attempt to, you know, there's attempt to uh, clamp down on the effectiveness of the Royal Navy squadron. Very interesting this, because the Royal Navy officers involved are committed to what they're doing. The British press sees them as kind of abolitionist heroes and presents them to the public in that way, and that actually means that the squadron is able to continue very effectively to do its work. But what that means is that the overland routes then become much more um, important. So you get the slaves being moved um, overland and down the Nile. But you're quite right. There's a growing problem for the Mahdist state, which is the degree of British control uh, in Egypt, which is which is tending to block that Route. I don't know that it's completely effectively blocked, but it's tending to block it. And what you've also got is this British presence on the um, Red Sea coast, which again is creating a blockage. So although you have, although the slave trade is still there as a major factor in the Sudanese um, economy, it's becoming, relatively speaking, uh, less important than it was. Mm-hmm. Well, the in the end, um, Kitchener who will eventually be Kitchener of Khartoum. Uh, he leads this Anglo-Egyptian army south into the Sudan and overthrows uh, the modest state. I, I don't want to get into all those details. I want to sort of um, just give a, a taste of where this ends with the mad mullah of Somaliland. Now, is there a link? Um, it, 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 you, you, this is sort of the last chain of your uh, of, of this story, so what's the what's the linkage between that previous link, Amdraman, and the fall of the modest state, and the Mad Mullah, and who is the Mad Mullah anyway? What's his real name? Muhammad <laughs> um, uh, uh, is his real name, um, and uh, <laughs> helpful. And, uh, uh, the, the Mullah Muhammad, and he becomes he becomes the the Mad Mullah. He's dubbed that by the by the British uh, press, and uh, you know you could say he's no madder than uh, Charles Gordon, uh, or, or or it's just that he has a different religion. It's uh, euphonious. Yeah, we, yeah. I, I'm quite careful in the book that to refer to him as the Muller rather than the yeah. Mad Muller. If it's Mad Muller, it goes into inverted commas. Um, he's he's a, a similar figure to 
uh, the Mahdi in that he is uh, highly educated in traditional uh, Islamic uh, teaching. Uh, he does uh, the Hajj, uh, the pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, on one occasion when he's returning from Mecca, um, the story is, we don't know that much about him. I have to stress this. I mean, his biography is quite hazy, but we are led to believe that he actually stops off on the way um, uh, on the Red Sea coast of uh, Sudan. And he becomes aware, or more aware than he had been before, of this enormous insurgency which there had been. And I think um, imagines himself then playing a similar role in the history of Somaliland. Now, somewhat ironically, the the Battle of Omdurman has been fought in 1898. The Mahdist Caliphate has been smashed. The Sudan is now under British military um, occupation. And it's only in the following year that uh, the Mullah Muhammad, returning to uh, Somaliland, uh, announces his own uh, jihad. Um, he doesn't describe himself as a Mahdi. He doesn't describe himself as the expected one, but he certainly sets himself up as an Islamic uh, military uh, leader, as the leader of a holy war. So he's pushing it. He, he obviously sees the, the, the need for the faithful uh, yeah. following following the destruction of the, the Mahdist regime at Omdurman. And uh, so there's very much, uh, he's filling, going to fill that vacuum and he's going to supply that need. Yeah, and 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 I mean that is one of the themes of the book that that there is a kind of movement which actually stretches across the whole of North Africa. I mean mm-hmm. there are echoes of this in West Africa. I mean the French mm-hmm. have to deal uh, with uh, local Islamist um, insurgencies right over on the other side of Africa. So this is a this is a kind of in, there's a there's almost like an Islamic um, international. Um, which is stretching across the region, promoting this kind of response to European imperialism. And the mullah of Somaliland uh, falls into that category. Somaliland, uh, however, at the time, I mean, the modern name, of course, is Somalia, known as Somaliland at the time. Um, it, It was even poorer than Sudan. I mean, it didn't even have the benefit of the river and the riverine agriculture um, and indeed, the slave trade, the active slave trade, um, it's a desperately, desperately impoverished region, one of the most impoverished regions in the world. And what I describe in the book, really, is an Islamist insurgency which which is less directed against a pretty minimal British present, presence, which is restricted to Berbera and a few other places on the coast. It's very, very minimal. It's not as if the whole country has been put under British uh, administration in the way that Sudan was under Turkish administration. It's a pretty minimal uh, infidel presence, if you like. In reality, what happens is that uh, the, the mullah and his uh, forces, they're just another element in the tribal mosaic of Somaliland. And in practice, they are predators. They are really preying upon other tribes, tribes that have not accepted the leadership um, of the mullah and who are therefore fair game for the young fighters, uh, the Islamist fighters that the mullah has gathered um, around him. I'm going to ask you some questions about the, the research and, and how you how you put this this all together. Um, I just alluded to um, finding out about the mullah Muhammad is very difficult. 
So that um, what sources did you use to find out about him? I mean, what what are you dependent upon uh, when you're when you're doing this? And and how did uh, so? Yeah, let's we'll start there. Two main, I mean, two main sources. Um, there is a very large amount of published and therefore easily accessible primary source material. Uh, the accounts of the explorers, uh, military reports, official military reports, official military um, histories of the um, expeditions, the various different uh, expeditions mounted by the British. That's certainly the case uh, in relation to the revolt in Somaliland. We've got those uh, official British accounts of what actually happened. So there's lots of um, very accessible primary source material. But secondly, what I would say is that what I've tried to do in Empire and Jihad is write a grand narrative, a kind of synthetic overview of a long period of history over a very wide region. And there are lots and lots of excellent uh, secondary historical works that you can you can then draw upon. Uh, so, for example, um, the early chapters, which are about the uh, what the explorers are doing. We've got the accounts of the explorers themselves, and I, I quote quite a lot from those accounts, but we've also got some absolutely first-class uh, biographies of those individual um, explorers. I mean, each of each of them, in actual fact, has, has several uh, biographers of variable quality, of course. So I think for a, a historian who is primarily interested in the big picture, big swathes of time and what's happening over a large region, you draw primarily upon published uh, sources, both primary and secondary, rather than going into the archives to root out new documents that have not been looked at before. Um, that's the kind of thing you do, I think, if you're involved in a, in a much tighter, you've got a much tighter focus in terms of your historical research. What... Um... So you, you started out the, your, your last book. You were you were thinking about the era of revolt of 1918. Um, at what point did you decide? How did you get back to David Livingston from that? I mean, how did you start? How did you, what was the was there a? Did you say, hang on a minute, where does this all begin? And then you ended up tracing this back to David Livingston, or did, was that? Or did um, did David Livingston come first? as you were thinking about the Arab slave trade? How did this, how did you make these connections? I, I think it was a, a somewhat strange story, actually. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think what happens first is there's the engagement with Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. who's, you know, this iconic maverick and eccentric and kind of British weirdo. And then he's often compared with Gordon of Khartoum, Mm -hmm. And Gordon actually is another character, like Lawrence, that I've always been very interested in, always, always very intrigued by. And then I thought, well, yeah, but if you're going to talk about Gordon and you want to put Gordon into a context, what is the context? And then I, I got this sense that Gordon is situated right in the middle of this absolutely massive story, which is the story of the Arab slave trade, and what I came to call the uh, the first uh, modern uh, jihad, mm -hmm. and then and then I think there were there were echoes as I sort of realised that Gordon is part of something much much bigger. We're of course in the period of the war on terror, and mm -hmm. I realised that there were these very strange connections with the present because I mean less true of Bush. 
But at the beginning of the war on terror, if we think about Blair's rhetoric, I mean, Blair, you know, presented what was going on as very much a humanitarian mission. That was the ideological framing of the interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I thought, goodness me, that is so close to what is actually happening uh, in uh, Africa in the 19th century, where you have... uh, Two figures in particular, the two most important figures are David Livingstone and Charles Gordon. And then I think that the third figure you'd put into your frame would be Henry Morton uh, Stanley. And what are they doing? They're effectively, unwittingly, because all three of them are basically good men. I mean, they're basically conscientious, decent uh, humanitarian people. So it's unwittingly, what are they doing? Unlike Blair, actually, I don't wouldn't describe in that way at all. Um, uh, you, you, what they're doing is they're providing the framing, they're providing the packaging, really, for a British military intervention. And what's that British military intervention really about? It's really about the interests in uh, the interests of Anglo-French uh, finance capital, and then more generally the development of what I call a kind of coolie capitalism. And what I mean by that really is a capitalism that's all about getting hold of uh, cheap raw materials, getting hold of captive markets for the expansion of the national economy back at home. Cheap labor which means for cheap, turn- cheap, cheap, uh, cheap raw labor, materials. Yeah. Which depends on cheap labor. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and then there's other connections. Uh, I remember back... Um, I mean, what you just described with the the Mullah Muhammad sounds an awful lot like Somalia ninety one ninety two. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know where there's there's this and or or Somalia for that matter in two thousand three two thousand four where there's Islamists are a tribe amongst tribes, uh, young men who are the the strongest tribe. Um, yeah, the, and for that matter, then this the connections of Sudan with this the modern uh, war on terror. Are really extraordinary too. I mean, I think it's Hassan Tarabi was the first real um, doctrine of modern Islamism in the early 1990s. He was an advisor to the leader of Sudan. Um, of course, Osama bin Laden had took refuge in Khartoum for uh, before he moving back to Afghanistan. So there are so many <laughs> there's so many weird connections um, between the two. It's in the sort of irresistible um, irresistible to make them. I'm curious, is there anything you wish you had written in that now when you look at the book, you say, gosh, I wish I had put that in there? <laughs> um, I, I don't think so. One of the reviewers suggested that um, I, uh, I, I was racing through the last part of the story. So the story that you know runs really from, um, I suppose, 18... 98 from the time of the Battle of Omdurman through to 1920. Um, but I don't really think that's the right. Uh, right. I think it was always the intention to do that. And I think possibly the reviewer, you know, thought that I spent too long talking about the, uh, you know, those great journeys of exploration. But mm. to go back to something I said much earlier, I think the important thing is to tell a good story. And that's what I really wanted um, to do. And the revolt in Somaliland was on a relatively small scale. We're talking about a very, very low intensity insurgency and very small numbers of British troops actually are involved in this. I mean, we're talking about major battles in terms of the war, 
are being fought by forces of a hundred or so people on the British uh, side. These are effectively policing operations as far as the British Empire is concerned. And then in relation to the First World War, you see, the interesting thing about the First World War is it doesn't produce a jihad. That's, a, so that's there, exactly there, where I was there, going to ask you. There's yeah. only a limited story to tell. The story yeah. here is that um, the British were terrified there would be a jihad. So yeah. what do they do? They put huge numbers of troops into Egypt. They have 100,000 troops um, in Egypt and Sinai uh, throughout the war. They eventually fight a major campaign in Palestine uh, and then they've got a third of a million troops actually fighting in Palestine. Now, why are they doing this when the main battle, of course, is raging on the Western Front as far as the British are concerned? They're doing, they're doing this because they're terrified that the contact between the Ottoman Turks on the one hand and this restive subject population in Egypt on the other will lead to a jihadist revolt because they've got recent historical experience of this. They take that threat very, very seriously. So it is shaping the nature of the war in the Middle East. I've already mentioned that it's one of the reasons, one of the major reasons why they want an alliance with the Emir of Mecca. They want their own leading Islamic figure um, on uh, their side. So that also is, you know, that's how this fear of jihad, the spectre of jihad um, is shaping the war. But at the end of the day, it doesn't happen. Um, you get a limited revolt in the Western desert of the Senussi. You get a little disturbance in the Western Sudan, but you don't get the whole thing kicking off in the way that the British feared. And then in a way, the story comes to an end until we get to the war on terror. Because what ends the story in 1920, just before 1920, is you get the emergence of modern Arab nationalism, represented by the revolt in Egypt in 1919, uh, the revolt in Syria in 1920, and so on. And in that period of the 20th century, the rest of the 20th century, it's really Arab nationalism that is shaping the struggle uh, with uh, Western imperialism. My guest today has been Neil Faulkner. He's the author of Empire and Jihad, the Anglo-Arab Wars of 1870-1920. Neil Faulkner, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for inviting me. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. <laughs>